So we've been talking about the teen years in our class or our series on parenting, and in particular the past couple of sessions on some challenges concerning that that parents face, and it should be noted, challenges that the teenager themselves are facing during those years. Uh, There was the matter of rebellion. We talked about that. Um, We talked about that and were encouraged by uh, reckoning the fact that God himself has rebellious children that he has reared. And I've reminded us of that the last two times we've been together. And then we picked up a discussion on the matter of anxiety. Uh, We've talked about how common it is, how common it is among teenagers, but also how common it is among adults, Christians, uh, are no exception. We noted that King David battled with anxiety and fear, and he writes about it uh, a lot in the Psalms. Paul experienced anxiety and fear, and he writes about it. Uh, just to kind of remind us of that reference, I, I brought one of those references concerning Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He talks about the affliction which came upon them in Asia. Now, that could be physical persecution. We know he suffered that. It could be um, an onslaught of false teachers. We know he suffered from that. Uh, At one point, he lists all the things that he faced in his ministry. And then he makes this statement, add to that the burden that I carry for all the churches. So there were a lot of things that could go into that affliction that they were experiencing. But the net result is, he says there in verse 8, they were burdened excessively beyond their strength and they despaired even of life. Living seemed like too difficult. Uh, And that's the Apostle Paul's testimony. He talks about being delivered from death and yet walking around with this almost body of death. And that anxiety and pressure that he was under, he doesn't hesitate to say that it reached into depression. Not just him, but those that were with him. So he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side. We had conflicts without and fears within. But most illuminating there is verse 6. God who comforts the depressed comforted us. So there Paul makes his own admission of an anxiety that reached a level of depression and a God who is the one who responds. Now God used means to do that. We didn't mention that two weeks ago. God comforted him by sending him Titus. So oftentimes, right, that's the case. God comforts us by sending us individuals that can bring us the comfort we need. And so then last time we asked the question, where does this come from? Where does this darkness that can settle in, the dark night of the soul, depression, anxiety, fear, where does it come from? Uh, One place, not the only place, and not always the place, is sin. Sin within, lust within, passions that aren't met and satisfied, and that can lead to anger and resentment and ultimately to anxiety. We're unsatisfied, and it produces stress in our life. We also mentioned satanic assault. The world forces are marshaled against God and God's people, and in that specifically against the family. That has been Satan's target from the very beginning. We talked about distressing circumstances, uh, physical weaknesses. These are things that can assail an individual, any individual, that can bring about anxiety and fear. Uh, Life is hard. Life for a teenager is not any easier. 
Um, in many ways, it's one of the most difficult seasons of life. They have peer pressure. There's the natural urge toward independence and still the urge of the parents to not yet be or allow that liberty. There's the unknown future. People are starting to ask them what they're going to be and what they're going to do, and it produces anxiety. And then we touched on physical weakness, how important it is to acknowledge that in any case of depression and anxiety. Are you getting enough sleep? Um, we, we just touched on inactivity, poor nutrition. All of these things can have an effect. There is the mysteries of the mind and the brain, which we're not going to delve into. But as Christians, when we study anthropology, what God says about the human being, we understand that we are complex and that area which is less distinct to us is where the mind and the brain, the emotions, the will, all of that comes together. And sometimes um, that can be a physical condition. We don't blame it all on the brain, but the brain can certainly be involved in producing these kind of uh, conditions, and sometimes medication is appropriate. Uh, we also mentioned that medication is certainly overused today. And, um, and then I made uh, this point after we talked about the fact that placebos often work as effectively as other psychotropics. What the patient finds in the medication isn't so often a medical answer to their anxiety. The pill's not fixing anything. But they found what they really needed all along. They found hope. And the hope does bring relief. And um, for us as Christians, we're in the hope business. Uh, so this is an arena that we need to be informed of. And we need to be able to communicate hope to people who are struggling in this way. And then... As an eye-opener, and this is still a review, uh, we talked about our own Lord and the fact that He can relate to our struggles because the writer of Hebrews says He was tempted in every way that we are. Not, again, facing the exact same temptations you do, but being tempted to a degree that you can't even relate to because He could not have succumbed to it. So He faced the full pressure of a temptation beyond what you would ever imagine. And then we touched on the anguish that he felt in the garden that was real angst, that was real anxiety, and, and it had physical manifestations where he sweat even drops of blood. And that led us to our ending uh, when we were together two weeks ago. It is that same Jesus who knows us best and loves us most who says to us, you can come to me. You can come to me when you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, he also says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And we kind of left it hanging there, but I did add, and it's important. He didn't say it would be easy and light. It's still a burden. It's still a yoke. This is the pressures of life, but synced up to him, it becomes something that is much more easily uh, borne out. And then we ran out of time, uh, and so we're going to pick up right there, and tonight we need to talk about how we help the anxious. Um, Dr. Murray that I mentioned earlier, he would say this is taking these principles, this review we've done that I just did with you again and taking the keys now and trying to use them in the home, uh, in your own life, if necessary, certainly in the lives of your children, if necessary, other believers that you know. 
How do we apply what we've learned? And so you might want to make a list of these. If not, you can get the list of these from me later. But number one, the key of understanding. Uh, That starts with you. If you're going to deal with anxiety, uh, fear, rebellion in the heart of your teenager, you need to understand it. And so we've done a little bit of this, right? I did a review. We did a whole session last time. You need to know what the basics are of anxiety. What does it look like and where does it come from? You need to remember what I just reminded you of. It is common. Do not react um, in the home with a loved one, especially with your teenage son or daughter, as if suddenly you've inherited, you know, something straight from the pit. This is a common thing. This is a reality, and you need to understand that so that you can be effective as a parent. Remember the biblical examples that inform the condition. I focused only on three, David, Paul, and Jesus. But we have Jeremiah who was, anybody know Jeremiah's subtitle? The weeping prophet. I mean, the guy just was heavy-hearted all the time. And, and, and you could go on and on in Scripture and get examples that will inform the condition that you or your teenager is experiencing with biblical drama. Uh, so you don't have to build up your own drama. Let the Bible inform your circumstance. And I would say as you're remembering and understanding, don't ignore the science Don't shut off science. Don't shut off the science of the mind, psychology. Don't shut all that off as if it can't aid you uh, even as fallen man seeks to study the natural order to learn. And we benefit from science in so many areas. There's not any good biblical reason to exclude science when it comes to a malady that has emotional manifestations, physical manifestations, and spiritual implications, there is no reason to isolate that as though medicine or science has nothing to say to it. And then you may want to make a note of this. The thoughts of the human mind sow the seeds of worry. The feelings that come from the thoughts are the emotions that we call anxiety. And then the body experiences that. And when the body experiences that, we just commonly call it stress. So if worry takes place in the thoughts and anxiety is produced in the feelings, it will have an effect on the body. It will, it will impact the physical body. And our Lord is a perfect example of that in his grief in the garden. Doctors will tell you that one of their highest concerns and most common and difficult to treat maladies is stress. It's killing us, literally, if you just read the science. If you read your Bible, you won't see a lot different there. You'll see Christ warning you against it and giving you the perspectives to overcome it And letting you hear the fact that anxiety that reaches to that level is a sin. But it's also a killer beyond the reality of sin. Heart disease, most attributed to stress. Diabetes, most attributed to stress. Depression, most attributed to stress. And what makes this so particularly dangerous, one physician would say, my doctor 
is what makes it so dangerous is that you don't recognize stress because you live in a culture that is always stressed. So it just feels normal to us. And uh, one of the ways, and most of you won't get that opportunity, or maybe you will at some time in your life, one of the ways to recognize the stress we live under every day that we consider as normal is to visit another country. They don't move on the same time we move. They're not always clicking a stopwatch. It's, it's a completely different pace. And I'm not arguing that you should then go move to another country, but I am saying stress has a tremendous impact before it's recognized. And oftentimes it's too late to actually reverse all the, all the problems. And the reason is because you're under it all the time. So it just feels normal to you. And you have to learn to manage that. But we're talking about particularly being sensitive to that in the lives of our teenagers. All right, so that's all under the heading of understand it. This is the key now to helping your teenager or anyone with these issues. Number two, the key of exercise. And we've touched on that, but this is a reminder. And now what I'm telling you is practically speaking, this isn't telling your son or daughter it's important that you exercise because, well, I think I learned in the church and maybe from my... Anyway, no, it's moving and motivating and training your child to exercise. Get engaged in this issue because it is a very significant contributor to the anxiety that they're experiencing. If they study a lot, get them a stand-up desk. Just practical ways to get your child moving and upright. If they're a gamer... Get them a standing gaming stand. Let them game as long as they can stand it. But don't let them slouch on the couch for two hours without moving. Exercise, right? Get them engaged in a gym. Get them engaged in a sport. Join a country club. Um, Not for just the social benefits, but the, the activities that go on that allow your teenage son or daughter to become engaged in active exercise. Now you got to be careful there, right? You can join a country club and just add to the stress of your teenager who's trying to navigate their way through life and who they are and, and peer pressure and the rest of it. But these are just simple things to think about. I would say this, any exercise is better than no exercise. And according to studies taken, most of our teenagers, and I, when I say most, I mean in the low 70% are getting what would be measured as no exercise. Um, Being busy is not the same thing as getting exercise. The results of exercise, one of the great things is the results are immediate. You get immediate results with just a very, very little bit of effort. You can feel it the next day. Uh, By the way, that's a good thing. That's how your body produces muscle. Ask any uh, physical therapist or you can Google it on your own. They will tell you the key to muscle growth is tear and repair. You have to tear that tissue, and when it repairs itself, it repairs itself stronger. There's a lot of life principles in that, just sewn into the natural order of how the human body works. But my point is, you get immediate results, and they can feel it, and that's a good thing. How much better to have a sore leg than a sore heart because I sat around all day and my legs were atrophy? Healthy food, make better choices. Am I being too practical? Okay, these are the keys These are things you have to do. Number three, the key of organization. I'm talking about personal disciplines. You have to teach your children 
personal disciplines. We'll be coming back around full circle to Proverbs 22 again in a few weeks. And we'll start back here. All that the, the wise Proverbs of Solomon tell us about laziness and slothfulness and disorganization and a lack of self-discipline. If your teen has not been disciplined, if you're listening now and you're saying, man, I missed the infant years, I missed the toddlers, I missed the learning years, I didn't do any of that, you can start now. Uh, you have to be sensitive to that because it's going to be an adjustment, but you can start and, and, be, and be patient because old bad habits die hard, but it's really, really important here. Now, let me give you a principle. This is a biblical principle. It's applicable in our spiritual life, but it's applicable in this area of getting your life together, as it were, or helping your teen reach that point. Off with the old, on with the new. Now, if you've heard Christian disciplines taught in your years of Christianity, you've undoubtedly heard this. It comes right out of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Paul writes, in reference to your former manner of life, Whatever that was, and in here, of course, he's talking about the life of sin. Notice what he says, lay aside the old self, put it off, take off the old. It's being corrupted in accordance with the lust of, de of, of deceit and be renewed. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and then watch, put on the new self. That's the principle. Take off the old self. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about helping your teenager learn the keys of organization, which is really principles of discipline, self-discipline. And, and it's more than just stop. Stop doing that. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. This is how we typically parent. We've just had it up to here and we're going, to tell every, we're going to tell the child everything they need to stop doing or everything they need to start doing. But we don't approach it from, if, if you can change this behavior, stop. That would be positive. But it is absolutely essential that you replace that behavior with a positive behavior. If you don't, biblical principle, the first behavior will only show up again worse. All right? So... The principle, I'm just giving you the principle, off with the old, on with the new. Illustrated by our Lord when he talks about an unclean spirit. Notice this is Jesus. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, put it off, gets rid of all that stuff. It passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. This is the spirit of unrest. We might call it the spirit of undiscipline or disorganization, can't find any, and it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. Uh, this, this man has purged out the evil spirit. It wandered around trying to find another home, couldn't find any. So it says, you know what? I'm going to go back from whence I came. Now watch, here's the, here's the principal truth that our Lord wants to make. It goes along, it goes, and it takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go back to where they came and they live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. I say, what's that got to do with the person? Well, it's right there in verse 25. When that evil spirit came back, what they found, look, 
was a floor swept clean and a house put in order. In other words, this individual had been off with the old but hadn't filled that, that house back up with any new. They hadn't filled it up with good spirit. They hadn't filled it up with truth. They hadn't filled it up with good disciplines. This principle, you see it, I, I can relate to this, and many of you can, maybe all of you can. You see it around this time of the year, although we're way past it by January or February. But in January, right, I'm going to put off some stuff, and it's going to be weight. But, but everybody will tell you, if you don't put on really good habits, really good disciplines, the weight, roaming around as it were, will come back and bring more weight with it. It's just how it works. You can't just put off. Now, let me be sure I didn't lose you there. Parents, you can't just tell kids, stop it. You have to offer them the positive benefit and reward of supplanting bad behavior with good behavior. Supplanting bad thoughts with what? Good thoughts. The Bible says that. Think on these things, Paul says. Whatever is good. What, right? And some of you can quote the verse. Whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of, if there's any good thing, think about those things. This is what we mean. It's not just, you've got to stop thinking those ugly, dark thoughts. That's, that's helpful as far as it goes, but it doesn't go anywhere. You need instead to think about these things. So I'm talking about organization, and I'm telling you, you've got to help them put on good habits, not just stop the bad habits. Now, let me tell you the real Rubber meets the road issue when it comes to personal disciplines and teaching your children to get organized. That is that you don't do it. You don't do it. And if your life is a mess and you're trying to tell your son or daughter because you realize it's produced anxiety and stress and fear in their life that their life is a mess and they need to straighten it all out. You're getting nowhere. You're a hypocrite. And they recognize your hypocrisy. So be careful there. Be careful that you're not not doing what they must be doing. If your focus on personal disciplines is to start small, I recommend you should. Like make your bed. Uh, Make your bed. And so make your bed. Make your bed. Make your bed today. Make your bed tomorrow. Make your bed the next day. It's Saturday. You get to sleep in late, but when you get up, got to make your bed. But they walk by your bedroom and you didn't make your bed because you were in a hurry and you had to get to the office and you had to pack their lunch. Do you understand? I don't have to belabor that, I think. The reason we're weak in our culture and Christian culture seemingly no different in teaching personal disciplines to our children is because we don't practice personal disciplines. I would say it as a 60-year-old, we're two generations removed. That means the parents weren't taught what they are now feeling a pressure to teach their children. That means grandparents need to be engaged, and the church needs to be engaged in these kind of dialogues. Not so much a dialogue as a monologue, but we all need to be engaged. So if you uh, start with make your bed for your teenager, then you have to make your bed. If you start with pick up your clothes and put them in the laundry basket... Then you got to keep the laundry basket empty so they have somewhere to put the clothes. If you start with clean your desk, then you have to clean your desk. If you start with keep your car clean, then you have to keep your car clean. That's the way it works. Lastly, let me say this. Don't ever just get so frustrated that you tell your teenage son or daughter, just, you know what, you need to get your act together. 
It's way too much, and it's not enough all at the same time. Start small. Celebrate every victory. Celebrate every victory. And you'll see right away that you can uh, advance this pretty quickly. All right, let's look at number three. uh, Excuse me, number four, getting more important. Uh, The key of Christ. Your teenager, with all of their anxiety and all of their fears is likely experiencing uh, the reality of doom. Listen to Dr. Murray's story, uh, who I've referenced and, and whose materials are up here. This is his, these are his words. Doomed Dave was me. I suffered with spiritual anxiety in my teens because I was living a sinful life. I was not right with God, and I knew if I died, I'd go to hell. Although I was enjoying some successes, I was living under a dark cloud of fear, especially when I heard a convicting sermon. Parents, he parenthetically writes, this is one of the primary reasons your teenager doesn't want to come to church. It's not you. It's God. It's not you. It's the doom they're living under. By the way, it's also one of the primary reasons you don't want to come to church. He goes on, I was living under a dark cloud of of fear. My early 20s, I'd gone even deeper into sin. And sometimes I was too scared to go to sleep. In God's sovereign mercy, He saved me in my early 20s after a particularly unhappy year. I not only knew my sins then were forgiven by Christ, but I experienced an unforgettable peace and joy. Watch, a peace and joy that I realize best because I wasn't doomed anymore. So that's real, parents. The doom is real. And it is scary. And it arrives most often and ordinarily in the teen years. Jesus said, I say to you, my friends... Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And that is God. So, in all of the things that your teenager may be telling you, if they'll speak to you at all about their fears, you need to have enough insight as a Christian parent to know that it is quite likely this is the fear they're facing. The reality of the judging hand of God that rests on them. You need to remember, Christians, how the Holy Spirit works. He always works the same way. He had a purpose to be that member of the Godhead to come and serve a purpose after our Lord had served a purpose. And here's what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. When He comes, here's what He will do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been Judged. You need to realize the Holy Spirit will produce fear in the life of a teenager. 
That's, that's his purpose. So that they might come to Christ and seek the only answer to their fears. All right, so while the closest person to them may be the object of their anger and rebellion and, 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 and the one they won't talk to when they clam up because of their anxiety and their fears, all that we've learned, I can't repeat it all, and then please remember this. This is when God is dealing with them. They are becoming adults. They are becoming or going to have to become responsible for their own faith. And if they've been raised in a Christian home, this is more likely greater felt than if they're raised in an unbelieving home. No, the fear abides and the Holy Spirit convicts the world, not just Christian uh, children of Christian parents. But the Christian child can put their head around that. And they've heard enough and learned enough about a great and an awesome God who destroys cities and wipes out armies and one day will cast all sin and death and its participants into a lake of fire. That's, that's the stuff that's really scary. All right? You need to realize, parents, that one of the primary reasons teenagers are facing the anxiety they are in record numbers is because they have that fear and nobody's offering them any hope. It will settle in, that fear. God will see to that. The Holy Spirit will do it. And the only antidote for that fear is the gospel. Everything else is a band-aid. That's when they need the gospel. Not that they didn't get the gospel for the first 18 years of their life or however many years it were. They have to have it now. Or they will go from anxiety to fear. A real fear that doesn't want to live any longer. Because they can't find any reason to. That takes me naturally to our next point. Your teen needs to know Jesus personally. Your teenager cannot live on your faith. Your teenager cannot live on their sibling's faith. They have to have their own faith. They have to have a response of faith. And now, as young men and women... Be confronted with the reality that they must be responsible for that faith. Nobody else can be responsible anymore. They have to be responsible now. And that means, naturally, your teen needs to hear the gospel again and again and again. And I thought about taking the time to just stop right now and just go around the room and point a few of you out that are parents that already had teenagers and have you stand up just in a four or five minutes, share the gospel with us. That's a little intimidating, and by now you're probably glad I didn't decide to go ahead and do that. If you don't know the gospel, if you can't deliver the only antidote that that child you love more than life itself in many ways, the only antidote for the fear and the anxiety and the oppression of doom. What kind of parent are you? Where do you think they're going to get it? Say, well, that's why, I, that's why I drag them to church. So the preacher can give it to them. Well, there's benefit in all of that. Uh, don't, I don't discount any of that. Well, let me help you here. With this. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. 
It's not the first time most of you have heard that. Talk to yourself about a Savior who died for your sins so you don't have to. Talk to yourself about the wretched sinner that you were, unworthy in any way. Talk to yourself about what an incredible, unbelievable, and really can't get your head around it grace that was afforded to you when God chose to call you to himself. No one is more influential in your life. Are you listening? Nobody is more influential in your life than you are. What are you telling yourself? No one talks to you more than you do. What are you telling yourself? Be sure when you talk to yourself, you choose your words carefully. And talk to yourself every day about the gospel. Find some time, write it on a card, repeat it. But ultimately, in your mind, can you imagine, mom and dad, what a difference that might make in your life and how it might position you to make a difference in your teenager's life? All right, back on the teenager. Don't oversimplify the gospel for your teenager. Understanding the gospel precedes the power of the gospel to save. I don't know why God did it that way, but he did it that way. He could have just bypassed the brain and targeted the heart and gave us a new one, but he didn't. He goes through the mind. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word, and that, that, the implications of that hearing with understanding. Don't dumb it down any more than you would water down the medicine that would cure them. Don't dumb down the gospel that alone can give them the relief that they need. Remember Moses as an example. When he said to God in Exodus 33, show me your glory. God, of course, told him, you can't see that. But I can display my glory for you in words. Here are his words. God said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. What is that about? If you want to see the glory of God. If you want to comprehend God. Which Jesus says knowing God is eternal life. And you want your child to understand God and the gospel. You cannot skip the part that God is sovereign. And it is constantly debated still today in Christian circles between two primary traditions. Don't bring God's sovereignty up on the front end of the gospel. Bring it up later when they can understand it. So just try to put your head around that. So I'm to present them a God who isn't sovereign so that they might imagine they themselves are sovereign So that in their sovereignty they might choose the God that they would never in their own sovereignty choose. And then if they make such a choice and God is pleased to save them, then one day I'll introduce them to the real God who Moses met, who says, I choose who I'll choose. I'm gracious to who I'll be gracious. So you're, when I say don't oversimplify the gospel, I mean by that, don't dumb it down. And I mean by that, present the God of the gospel. God chooses. 
There is no better news than that news that the God who has every right to annihilate all of his fallen creation and every human being chooses not to do that, chooses not to do that upon those he extends his mercy. I just don't think parents, the teenage years, should skip over the sovereignty of God. I have to, I mean, it's at least annually, sometimes more often, have long discussions with adults who come here to worship and fellowship and have a testimony of faith but didn't know anything about the sovereign God of the universe as it regards their faith in particular, but over all things. Then they meet the sovereign God of the Bible and they feel like they're being saved again. And, and then we have to talk about, were you saved ever? What God saved you? And then, of course, we know that comes up to baptism. Should I be baptized again? Because I didn't know God was sovereign the first time. I thought I did it. Well, those are things to unwind that I'm trying to tell you, parents. You don't have to unwind it if you don't teach your kids that God's not sovereign. He's sovereign. Tell them that. He'll choose. And, of course, you have to teach them who man is and what man's problem is. We did all this already weeks ago. You have to teach them what repentance is. You have to teach them what faith is. There are helps for all of that. Your elders can help you with all of that. Our classes reinforce that. But parents, please don't oversimplify the gospel. Next, quickly, don't coerce a profession. Just don't do it for a thousand reasons. And I could give you all my reasons, and, and you might like some of them and might not like some of them. So I'm going to give you Dr. John MacArthur's reasons. You can write him a letter, but I agree with him 100%. Rather than getting their children to pray the sinner's prayer or enticing them into a superficial response, parents must faithfully, patiently, and thoroughly teach them the gospel and diligently pray for their salvation, always bearing in mind that God is the one who saves. Amen? Okay, we'll see how it goes. He goes on, there is no need to pressure or coerce a confession from the mouth of a child, and I would add or an adult, for genuine repentance will bring forth its own confession as the Lord opens the heart in response to the gospel. That is what you see everywhere in the Bible. If you want to revisit, just revisit Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching the truth about the crucifixion of Christ, that he was the Messiah, uh, that he was the risen Lord, and they interrupted him and said, what do we got to do to be saved? And they weren't coerced by six verses of a three-verse hymn played over and over in a church service. And parents, don't take that habit, if that's what you were raised in, don't take that habit into your home. When God saves them, they will confess their repentance and their trust in Him. And I would just tell you, as time goes by, and oftentimes it will, they're 15, now they're 18, now they're 21, now they're 26, now they're 28. As time goes by, it is never right to try to coerce a decision for Christ. It is never right. God does not do that. And doesn't ask us to do that. Let me add this one quickly. Your teen needs to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. What do I mean by that? 
I mean by that, you have to include in your gospel presentation their call to follow Christ as their Lord. He is not their Savior if He is not their Lord. You don't get to split Him into those, into those different roles, so to speak. He calls us to follow Him, to submit to Him, to obey Him, to serve Him, and to follow Him at the cost of denying our own self. To take up our cross and follow him. That's the gospel message that I mean when you, I say don't oversimplify it. These things are critical to the gospel. Or maybe you as parents need to ask yourself, do you believe in such a thing as a carnal Christian? That is, in other words, you, you believe that Jesus can save you and yet you don't submit to him in any way. You just live like your normal carnal life. If you believe that, then you're going to have a hard time teaching your child something different than that. But if you believe that you can have Christ as your Savior and not submit to Him as your Lord, you do not believe in the Christ of the Bible. You do not believe in the gospel. James reinforces that, and these are things I would share with my teenage son or daughter. We won't read it all, but the highlighted text you all are pretty familiar with Prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who do what? Delude themselves. Parents, don't delude your teenager. The the devil's trying to do that. Don't get on his team. They can't just be a hearer of the word. They have to be a doer of the word. Look at James 1.26. If you think yourself to be religious, but you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart. Your religion is worthless. If it's not making any difference, then you don't have anything. Chapter 2, verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if somebody says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Answer, no, it can't. James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? This is the gospel. This is the truth of Christ's lordship over everyone that he saves. And you have to teach that to your teenage son or daughter. Let me add this one. Your teen needs to be assured of a sympathetic ear. Jesus will listen. When they lay their heart out before him, he'll listen. Will you listen? Or they already decided years ago that you're not interested. Hebrews 4, we've looked at it a couple times over the last few weeks. He's our high priest. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Look what verse 16 says. Draw near to him with confidence. Come to the throne of grace. Receive mercy. Find grace. Find grace when? When you've earned it? Find grace when you need it. Find grace when you need it. We started, parents, months ago now, it seems. I don't know how many weeks we've been doing this. And I drew some distinctions about different parenting styles. And we landed on the biblical one. Grace-based parenting. But if you believe you were saved by works, then you'll parent and measure your child's response by works. But it's not works, is it? It's grace. Let me add this one, and this is really for all of us. Your teenager, and all of this, these are the keys to 
dealing with their troubled heart, they need to be reminded of heaven. I believe that relief for anxiety is possible in this life. I don't believe you have to walk around anxious and depressed and discouraged. I believe it's a reality of life. I believe it's common. But I also believe that relief is possible. Sometimes for a season. Sometimes for the reasons that we've touched on tonight. There are ways to respond and gain positive effect. But we also believe this. That if life here with all of its struggles, even if those struggles never stopped, is only a vapor. It's only a moment. And it's gone. Heaven is coming. And it's forever. It's forever. And it is wonderful beyond description. What the Bible tells you is not your trouble will end. What the Bible tells you is your trouble is not to be compared with what you get in the end. <laughs> That's what the Bible tells you. And he tells you right here is one example, Romans 8, 18. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. That's true. That's always true. It's true when the anxiety comes and wells up and God is pleased to offer you relief. And it's true when no relief comes. It's still true. You can't compare it to what waits in heaven. I have good friends that struggle with anxiety. Worse, just about right now today in the season of the year. They've just overwinter, right? I'm over it. And they, and they need sunshine. Um, some of you may know friends like that who, who go to Florida in the winter for that reason. It just, it, it's just more than they can handle. It becomes oppressive to them. But understanding that biblically makes you a good friend to that, to that man or woman. With compassion, with truth, and who knows the possibility of unlocking what the real issue is in their life, that they don't know God. But even if they do, life offers little moments of relief. Recreation is a biblical idea. You know what that is, right? Go somewhere and recreate. Just clean up a little. One day the reality of this vapor life will be clear to you. I can tell you, uh, Stephen Reed can tell you, because we've talked about it. Mike Torrey can tell you. It's different when you're 62. You can see the end. And, and it didn't take very long to get there. It's just gone. So if that's all it is, for all it is, sometimes the only thing you can do is endure Sometimes the only thing you can do is hold on. Well, there's more still. Because anxiety becomes fear. And fear destroys lives. Fear kills. And we have an antidote to that also. 